Dr. Shelley Ball, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you very much, Rich. Well, we're really excited, and and uh, I have uh, an exciting note for our folks today. I am co-hosting without Matt Sabatello, and I know everybody's happy about that. <laughs> I have the brilliant Amy Packer with me today. So, Amy, say hi to the folks. Hey, guys. So, folks, I know you remember Amy from her um, her podcast interview. It was actually one of the most downloaded interviews we've ever had, and now we've asked Amy to come on this side of the of the microphone with us so we can interview the brilliant Dr. Shelley Ball. So. Dr. Ball, why don't you first give us some background? Um, and I do want to let folks know that you are one of the kind North Americans. We always love to have our Canadian folks on because you're all so <laughs> nice, not cranky like the New Yorkers that we sometimes interview, <laughs> like me and Matt. So uh, thank you for being kind enough to join us and bring some, some joy to our community. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So um, tell us what First of all, what part of Canada you are currently residing in and talk to us about where you grew up. So I currently reside in eastern Ontario. I don't know if you're familiar with the nation's capital in Ottawa, uh, Ottawa, Ontario. And so I'm probably about an hour and a bit south, kind of southwest of, of Ottawa. I live rurally, so I'm I'm on 15 acres, uh, Canadian shell country. So lots of rock and trees and all beautiful area. Um, for folks who know Ontario a little bit better, I'm um, between Ottawa and Kingston, and uh, I'm right smack dab in the middle of a lime hot spot in eastern Ontario. Lucky me. Sadly, Dr. Ball, I think we're all in the middle of <laughs> we a are, hot spot. We are, aren't we? <laughs> during, during my childhood, actually, I'm so old and I've been getting bit <laughs> For so long, our guests know that I predate the discovery, at least the alleged discovery of the Lyme bacteria. Um, wow. We were most concerned about Rocky Mountain spotted fever during my childhood, but we were always being bitten by ticks. And of course, then Lyme, the Lyme outbreak became very, very well known in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always been there. But now I don't think anyone in North America can escape being in a Lyme hotspot. It really is endemic, right? So um, was that true of of uh, your childhood, Dr. Ball, or were you in, were you later introduced to ticks and tick diseases? Yeah, you know, the interesting question. So I grew up in Ottawa, so not too far from where I live now. And the reason why I live where I do is because we have a fam we had a family cottage just on the other side of Westport, Ontario. So that's kind of my nearest community. I'm between Perth and Westport, Ontario. And uh, I fell in love with this place. I mean, I, I actually became a biologist because of the, the beauty of this area. So, um yeah, I I spent my entire childhood between, uh, you know, romping around the fields around home in, in Ottawa and then up at the cottage here, you know, around Westport. Um, I spent my entire childhood romping around, you know, forest and meadows and outdoors. I, you know, I sort of joke that I popped out of my mom's womb as a biologist, right? I just literally, I was two years old and, and I'd come in and go, mom, I need a jar because I had some sort of insect in my my hand. And, and so... You know, you could sort of argue that, wow, you know, talk about a, maybe a higher risk lifestyle and, and even childhood because I spent every waking moment outside. And but I never saw a tick. You know, the first time I saw a tick was as a Ph.D. student. So I, I'm Canadian, but I, and I did my undergrad, my master's here in Canada. And then I went to the U.S. for my Ph.D., University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And while I was a Ph.D. student in the second half of the 90s, I was really, really fortunate to um uh, to get accepted to a program called um, uh, OTS, Organization for Tropical Studies. And as an ecologist, so my, my I'm a former university professor research scientist, and my area is evolutionary ecology and population genetics of insects. 
And so I was lucky enough as an ecologist to get accepted to this, this two month uh, field program in Costa Rica, Central America. And so spent, uh, trying to think now, I think we were gone for three months and we travel around, uh, keeping in mind, this is all biologists, right? All biology uh, graduate students. So it was about 20, 22 of us traveling around Costa Rica for three months or whatever, studying uh, field ecology at, gosh, we were probably at about eight different locations cross country. And I don't know if you've been to Central America, but it's tick heaven. And it was really common for us to, um, uh, to say brush up a, against a, a leaf, you know, of some tropical plant. And, and I don't even know to this day what the technical name is it for it is, but we used to call it a seed ball, seed tick ball. So basically there'd be a little ball of ticks hanging on the very tip of the, the leaf. You'd, some mammal, us, would br brush up against it. And next thing you know, you've got 300 little baby ticks scrambling all over you. So we always carried duct tape with us. We always had a roll of duct tape and we'd literally use it like, you know, like a lint brush kind of thing, right? To, you know, to get the ticks off us. Never thought anything of it. I, I mean, not for a nanosecond back then in the 90s did I ever think about what these things were carrying or, or even if I was bitten. And then I was at the very end of the three months. So we had just spent, I think, about 10 days in the lowland tropical rainforest. And it, we're talking like the most humid place I've ever been. And uh, it was about a 20 kilometer hike out from the field station to the civilization we were going. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And we're in a pair of shorts. And I feel this bump on my thigh. And I'm like, oh, man, what's that? Pull it off. It's a fully engorged tick. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Throw it away. Honest to God, Rich, I never, even as a biologist, I never, ever thought for a nanosecond about whether or not that tick was carrying anything. And then I never thought about ticks ever again until... 2019 when I was bitten here in Eastern Ontario and that's when my life changed. Okay. So let's, let's pause there for a second um, and um, walk back a little bit to uh, the, you know, the baby who was born to be a biologist who was <laughs> running around the wilds of Canada and then in Central and South America. Uh, and quite frankly, surprisingly, um, despite, you know, being educated at the highest levels at some of the top universities in the world, uh, you knew nothing about tick diseases and the risks associated with having hundreds of sea ticks on you at times when you were, when you were doing your field work. Yeah. I mean, give, give me your reaction to that, Dr. Ball, that, you know, that, you know, you're one of the most educated people in the world, um, with a very, in a very specific discipline biology you were you were you were doing fellowship type work um yeah. with insects and coming in contact with ticks yet no one prepared you to keep yourself safe when coming in contact with these with these vectors yeah not even for a nanosecond and you know it's really wild because when i think back of my first trip to costa rica which was towards the end of the last year of my undergrad degree i guess it was and um and it's interesting because preparing, so this would have been the, the late 80s, preparing to go to Costa Rica, um, you know, you get a typhoid shot, you get a hepatitis C shot, right? You try to figure out, well, do we need to take an anti-malaria medication? Well, at that point, there were no um, kind of endemic cases of malaria in Costa Rica. There were a few that were in the country, but they were actually from people coming mostly from Nicaragua. So the risk of, of malaria was really low. So you hear about all of these like tropical diseases and other things that you need to worry about. Everybody, anybody ever talk about a tick-borne disease? Absolutely not. 
and certainly not in North America. Um, I, I honestly, I mean, it, it, it is kind of shocking when I look back on it, but you know, we, as a biologist, you, you think about all the things that you can get, you know, bitten by or infected from and all that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, the big thing when I was in Costa Rica were bot flies and, uh, <laughs> I, I know this is kind of crazy, but as biologists, and not every biologist would say this, but as a, a evolutionary ecologist and population genetics in for insects, we used to have this kind of running joke that we wanted to get bitten by a bot fly because we actually wanted to to grow the bot fly in our skin just to see what the process was like. And and people would go, "Are you nuts?" And I'm like, "Yeah, well, inquiring minds want to know, right?" So this was the kind of stuff that we were focused on. Never even thought that a tick would be biting us let alone that it would be a vector. And, and it just never even crossed our mind. And here's the frightening thing is I look back on the number of field biologist colleagues that I have, some younger than me, most older than me, and most of them have Lyme disease. And some of them have had some pretty nasty diseases like Parkinson's and other things. And, and you know, you look at those and you say, well, where did the Parkinson's come from? And, and I don't have any proof, but, you know, it, it just breaks my heart because I think probably undiagnosed Lyme disease, right? Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I, that I'm really surprised about it, truth be told is, you know, you're, you're a PhD and, and you were exposed to all of the, um, all of the cutting edge information about uh, these vectors um, and you knew nothing about it. And I can tell you just as a practical matter, as a kid growing up in the sixties and seventies, um, you know, we were very aware of ticks. We were doing tick checks every day when we walked in our mm -hmm. house. Uh, we had what we call a janky tick kit where we had a vat of Vaseline and a tweezer and, 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 um, napkins and, and matches. And every day when our dogs came into the house, we checked them. And every day we, when we walked into the house, our, my mother made us do tick checks. I mean, that was really that was, that's where we were. And, you know, in the, you know, in the, in, in the late sixties and the seventies, I didn't graduate from high school until 1981. And we were doing that long before I graduated from high school. So, you know, this we, we had sort of, we I was a kid in the seventies and yeah, know, we even thought of this stuff. It, it's, 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 it's shocking to me that the, that the scientific community was so far behind the, you know, the, the, cultural community at least in new york at the time where where we were taking and our parents were helping us to take mm -hmm. steps to be as safe as we as we could be from these vectors and you know you're 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 being educated at literally the highest levels they're running you into ticks and you have no information at all about how to keep yourself safe right and you know one of the, one of the arguments i've made on this podcast is the reason i believe i do not have chronic Lyme disease despite having bitten by ticks scores and scores of times over my life is because we were so tick aware and and every every day of my life including my adult life i check myself with ticks mm -hmm. so so you know again one of the one of the things our listeners know uh, you know, painfully uh, well, is that uh, Lyme disease is a disease of exposure, right? right? And with a proper education and with taking proper steps, you can protect yourself from getting Lyme disease. And then, of course, you can also protect your children from the downstream effects the way, unfortunately, because Amy wasn't educated, she wasn't able to protect her baby from, from, from getting congenital Lyme disease, right? So, 
Um, it, it's always shocking to me. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to run on about this too long uh, because I'm sure our listeners are rolling their eyes now because they hear me do this all the time, but I'm just shocked that somebody at your level of education and with your capacity and your interest, yeah. um, I mean, you were again, born to be a biologist. You were rolling around the woods from when you could walk all the way <laughs> until probably yesterday. Right. And yeah. you didn't have the tools you needed to stay safe. And part of it too, is we just, you know, like even here in, in Eastern Ontario, we never saw ticks back then. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I mean, we had outdoor cats when I was a little kid. I, you know, I, I was a kid in the 70s and, um, you know, kitty go outside, come back in, never saw a tick. We never had dogs growing up. You know, I think we'd, we'd probably say maybe see, you know, a, a tick, a tick, like on the, the ear of a rabbit that hopped by at the cottage or something, or maybe deer. But we just never saw ticks. It was a whole different world than what we're in right now. And, and you know, kind of just to, to sort of close the loop on this, here, here's what's even more shocking. So I belong to a local uh, women's group. It's actually a, a, a national women's group here in Canada. Um, and so I'm, I'm chairing the environment committee for our local chapter. And back in 2018, when I was um, first uh, chair of the environment committee, um, we were responsible for organizing kind of a, the monthly speaker or whatever for April, which is environment month. And I decided to do a session on Lyme disease because we're hearing more and more about it. So I had a local resident whose daughter had literally been crippled from undiagnosed Lyme disease. Uh, we had a veterinarian and we had somebody from public health. And I thought, you know, because of Lyme disease, and remember this is 2018, so this is before my own Lyme nightmare started. And I just thought, you know, with Lyme on the increase, we really, really need to make people aware of Lyme disease and these issues and how to prevent an infection. And, you know, I, I had um, I had heard what public health was telling us. And, and I just thought, well, let's get some really good information. I cringe now, Rich, because I look back on that presentation that was given by public health. And I don't say this with any malicious intent. I'm just, you know, recounting a story. And I just cringe because everything I now know, everything that they told us was incorrect. And yeah. and I think part of that is a little bit of a motivation for why I'm just so active in terms of Lyme advocacy, because I've realized how, first of all, it led to my own almost dying from tick-borne illnesses. And now that Lyme and, and other tick-borne illnesses, I'm not even going to say Lyme, just tick-borne diseases, because, I mean, we've got three of them around here that are equally uh, prevalent and can make you really, really sick. And and I just, yeah, I, I cringe when I think about, you know, that session in 2018. And I, I really want to make people aware of the current information, the current science on Lyme as much as possible and other tick-borne diseases so they can stay safe. That's what I care about. Right. And also let, talk about one more piece with us before we 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 build out um your health history leading up yeah. to the you know your 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 tick bite in 2019. Um uh you're you're an avid out, outdoors person, right? I mean, you understand the importance that nature plays in our lives and how important it is for us to have a relationship with the outdoors, how important it is to, to for us to be healthy um when having a relationship with the outdoors. So talk about that element of your passion and how we have to strike the balance between mm -hmm. having a healthy relationship with nature, enjoying the outdoors, but also being safe at the same time. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's a, a, an extremely important one. And it, it's certainly one that's kind of at the root of the core of my passion. 
So I'm a biologist. I'm, you know, a, an outdoor enthusiast. I spend all of my time outdoors. I also have, it's not my full-time job, but I do have my own environmental education organization that I started. And the whole purpose of that organization, which I started in 2016, is to connect people to nature and to inspire them to care about nature and to protect it, right? Because we sure need that these days with climate change and all of the issues going on. And, and so it's also a way for me to kind of promote the outdoors and, and people connecting to nature. And, uh, you know, and, and so what's really frightening is, you know, I've been through this horrible um, uh, experience myself, and yet I still want people to go outside and enjoy nature. And, and I'm very adamant about that. I, I'm very adamant about saying to people, do not hide indoors. It, it, it's not okay. Like that's, it's not going to solve anything. What we need to do, unfortunately, is find a way to live with the current situation find ways to mitigate the risk as much as possible. How do we get outdoors, enjoy nature, connect with nature? Because we know we get so many benefits from it, physical, psychological, right? Um, so how do we still get outdoors and enjoy nature, but do it as safely as possible? And so that's a really, really big focus of, of what I do as well. So let's narrow the focus a little bit more um, and, um, and focus on people who are chronically ill, uh, people who are suffering from Lyme disease and the fears that, are natural when you have Lyme disease about now in going outdoors, right? We've had we've had mm -hmm. guest after guest after guest on this podcast that have taken the position that they've walked themselves to health. They uh they 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 were able to regain their health as a result of having a healthy relationship with the outdoors. Mm -hmm. In some cases it's 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 earthing or grounding, depending on your description of of, of having, you know, having the your your neurological system reset by coming in contact with the earth. Folks who talk about the the benefits of uh, of of detoxing, not just by moving, but by having by having um fresh air. Uh, mm -hmm. and we know all about you know the problems with not having fresh air after our COVID experience, right? And, and, and unfortunately, so many people in the Lyme community, when they're chronically ill, become shut-ins because they're afraid to come in contact with ticks. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you, uh, um, Dr. Ball, to narrow your focus and talk about the importance of people who are sick with Lyme disease to, um, you know, to get out into the outdoors as part of their healing journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've raised a really important uh, point there, Rich, because I, I do believe it's part of our, our healing. I think kind of locking ourselves in our homes doesn't benefit us in any way and and you know ticks aside i mean with covid we've kind of been forced to do that you know for a while and i think we've seen the negative impacts that that kind of isolation and lack of outdoor activity and all sorts of things lack of you know social interactions has so yeah i, I think it, it's really important to get outside whether it's the exercise enjoying nature you know meeting somebody at the local park for coffee or or whatever but I also really empathize with folks who are struggling with that because I went through it myself and I'm a biologist and I've lived my whole life outdoors basically. And it was, you know, you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to go outside. Oh my goodness. You know, am I going to get bitten by another tick? And, and that's what really led me to really start to think about um, Lyme disease and, and tick-borne illnesses. So there are kind of two parts to this. One is I'm not getting help from the medical system. So I need to read the science so I can help myself. But then the other part of it was, what are the preventative measures that I can take so I can go back outside? Because I'm going crazy here. I'm going squirrely. I cannot stay inside. And I, I was almost kind of becoming resentful of this, this feeling of 
frankly, terror about going outside and, and being bitten. I mean, I would see a tick and I, I just, it would almost send me into a rage because I thought, you know, you've, you've messed up my entire life. And, and there was a lot of anger and bitterness that I had to, to get over. And it sounds hilarious in one way, you know, you're kind of angry and bitter towards this little speck of an invertebrate, but it, it changes your life. It turns your life upside down. And, and so, you know, I think like many people was, it was kind of a, a process that I had to go through. And I, I had to kind of almost sit myself down and say, look, you know, you love being outdoors. You have this passion for nature. I mean, I've already always said to people, I, I can't survive without nature. I, I need to be outside in order to, to be healthy and, and just to feel alive and vibrant. And, um, and so that's when I really got busy kind of researching, okay, well, how can I get out there and do enjoy the outdoors and do it safely? So I started to look at, you know, things like, um, you know, what are the various repellents and, and things, you know, things I talk about in the book, you know, come in and do your tick checks, do multiple tick checks a day, you know, have your shower, put your clothes in the dryer, all of these things. Right. And, and I think kind of where I've landed now is that if you develop these new habits, there, there's no guarantees in life, right? Every time we get in the car, we take a risk. So there's no guarantees. But I think by adopting certain habits, we can we can mitigate that risk. We can reduce it to a large extent that we can still go outside and have fun and do the activities that we love to do. Because I don't think we should be hiding inside. So talk to us about what your health was like between the time that you had gotten bitten that you were aware of being bitten. And I, I would I would argue you yeah. were probably bitten during your childhood and didn't know it, but I don't necessarily want to debate with you about that. But you, the first time you became aware of having been bitten was when you had the ticks that were crawling on you when you were doing your fellowship and uh, when you found that engorged tick on your back. So talk to us about how your, how your health was around that time and thereafter up till 2019. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I think I would love to circle back with the, hey, I think you've had Lyme since you were a kid, because that's my conclusion. I have three autoimmune diseases, and the first one hit when I was 25. Um, and so, you know, it, it did that kind of, you know, was Lyme sort of priming the pump for these these autoimmune diseases? And I think that's, you know, it's a whole other discussion. In terms of my health, I mean, it's interesting because if you if you read um, Bill Rawls' book, Unlocking Lime, I think he does a fabulous job of talking about the pot boiling over, right? So you get, you know, we, we all have multiple infections, whether it's Epstein-Barr virus or, you know, whatever, right? We, we carry all of these microbes that we probably don't even know about. And cumulatively, they can make you sick. But most of the time, your immune system is pretty good at keeping things in balance, right? And so, but I had been through a really, really tough time. I moved back to Canada in 2009. I'd been a research scientist uh, in New Zealand for six years. Um, actually switched careers. So I left my academic career, came back home. So did an international move, bought a house. Um, I had kind of switched careers for, for very personal reasons. And part of it was to come back home to be with family and especially my mom, who was my, my best friend and frankly, my, my soulmate and her health was declining. Three months after I moved back to Canada in, in May of 2009, my mom became ill and she uh, ended up in hospital and she ended up in life support. She was actually on life support twice in 15 That's months. Hard. And it, it was just brutal. Um, it, it was the most horrendous thing that my mom had to go through. So that was really, really stressful. And then my, um, my common-law husband at the time uh, came from New Zealand, so trying to get him adjusted. Um, my first day of work in my new job, um, the work that I do now, my very first day at work, 
it was a day that my mom had surgery and then she went into septic shock and under life support 12 hours later. So, you know, I, I kind of had in some ways the perfect storm of life crises. And we know how that affects our immune system when we're that stressed. And then, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to say this as a, you know, poor me story, because um, that that's not what I want here. But I literally had a life crisis every year for, what, 12 years. And so, you know, after two stints on life support and three times me having to decide whether or not my mom lived or not, um, she passed away. And then my dad became ill. And then there were issues there. And then I went through a divorce and, you know, settling my dad's estate. And then I lost my eyesight due to cataracts when I was 51. And I live alone. And, you know, and, and it was just it was literally disaster after disaster after disaster. And, um, and then in 2021, I had water damage, I had a, a an unknown leak in my house because of a incorrectly installed uh, plumbing. Little did I know I had black mold growing in under my my hardwood flooring. And, and one day I wake up and all of a sudden my hardwood flooring is, you know, like a tent 12 inches off the, the ground off the, the concrete slab. I'm like, what is going on? And, and I'd been kind of getting sicker and sicker. My point is, is that I had literally had a mountain of life stresses leading up to my bite in 2019. Um, but what's really interesting was, so I went through a divorce in 2015. And th that summer, um, I was out, you know, playing in the garden, whatever, wearing wearing shorts. The only thing I wear in summer are shorts and t-shirts. The only thing, you know, my, my only wardrobe. And I'm sitting there on the back porch and I'm looking at my leg going, what's this, what's this round oval? And the first thing I thought, I'd never, I hadn't seen a tick in my backyard, but I thought, could that be a tick bite? Is this Lyme disease? And then I get on the internet and I go, oh, no, no, it's not Lyme disease because it's not a bullseye. This is me in 2015, right? As a biologist, as an educated person. So I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. Spider bite, right? Didn't think another thing of it. And then in 2016, uh, as I say, I lost my eyesight to cataracts and it came really quickly. And I was only like 51 at the time, so really young. So had cataract surgery, got my eyesight back, but I just started feeling sicker and sicker and sicker until kind of almost 2018. And my GP had said, uh, you know, I think it's just burnout. You, you've been kind of to hell and back with life in terms of all these life crises, you know, family issues, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so I think it's that and your age and perimenopause and all of these things have just kind of come together. And then in 2018, I had a concussion. And that just, that was really bad. It took me about a year to get past those symptoms, uh, post-concussion symptoms. And um, and that was in the spring of 2018. And so it took me a long time. I'm finally starting to feel a little bit better. And then boom, spring of 2019 is the tick bite that just about killed me. Okay. So let's, let's uh, stay with the 2019 window. And then Amy's going to take you through your diagnosis. So um, it sounds to me, and I wasn't counting, but there were a score of tick bites that you had during the course of your life, some of which you believe may have even predated your ability to recognize that you were bitten by ticks. But even, even after, after you graduated from university, you were, you were a graduate student, from that point forward, there were a score of tick bites that you had suffered, but you were healthy enough to manage the microbes um, that you were harboring, you you know, the, there seemed to be diagnoses of various types of uh, autoimmune diseases, um, 
likely uh, caused by uh, the the um, the microbes that you are you are harboring from your various tick bites. But then in 2019, everything changes, right? You're and, and, and you're clearly a resilient person. You had crisis after crisis after crisis over the course of 12 years, tick bite after tick bite after tick bite, but you're functioning at a high level. You're you're mm-hmm. you're working full time, you're taking care of everybody, uh, you're fine, and then you're not, right? 2019 makes a difference. You get another tick bite. And so how do you how do you discover that tick bite? And how did the symptomology change after that tick bite? Yeah, really interesting. So um uh, late April 2019, as I say, I live on 15 acres of forested land, always outside playing, breaking leaves, whatever. Um, and uh, come inside this one day and I'm having a shower and, you know, I live alone and I'm I'm kind of like, what's on my back? Of course, I can't see it, right? And uh, and then I, so I got at this, this kind of makeup mirror, whatever, and I go, oh my goodness, is that a tick? It was the size of a pea. It was fully engorged. And, and we figure it's probably on me for about 10 days. It was huge. So it was probably just, you know, like a day or two away from falling off. And, uh, um, you know, it was so engorged. And I, I went, oh, oh, man, what am I going to do about this? So I call my friend, right? What do you do? You phone a friend. I'm like, can you come take this like big honk and tick off my back? Because I, I was frankly kind of panicked about it. You know, and, and I don't panic easily, but I was like, oh my goodness, Lyme disease, ah, fully engorged tick. And so my friend was out of town and I'm like, uh-oh, like, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I got to get this thing off me. So I went to my local hospital, small town, and asked them to take the, the tick off. So they did. And I brought a vial with me because I said, could you please test this? And they're like, no, we can't test it. Well, actually they can, they just choose not to, which I think is really lousy. But anyways, I didn't know about tick testing then. So I said, well, give me the tick anyways. And um, I actually gave it to our local veterinarian because they were part of a, a, a testing program. It's supposed to be uh, ticks coming off of your cats or dogs that they test. It goes into a provincial database. So you don't actually get a result back for your own tick. It just goes towards, you know, looking at the prevalence of, of say Lyme disease and, and whatever in, in Ontario. So I couldn't get the thing tested because I didn't know that there was testing available. I didn't know anything about Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases back then. And um, and so the the ER doctor had said to me, yeah, you'll be fine. So here's um, here's two pills of doxycycline antibiotic. And uh, take this one dose, you'll be fine. I trusted them. I was like, I'm not a medical doctor. These guys know what they're doing. So I thought. And I took the dose, came home. Okay, fine. And uh, three days later, I came down with flu-like symptoms. And I was like, what is going on? And uh, yeah, I was just like, I, I had connected the dots, but I was like, really? So quickly? Because they talk about up to 30 days, you know, that first 30 days where you might feel have symptoms. Honest to God, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck three days later. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I was talking to a friend of mine who already had not just Lyme disease, but also Bartonella and Babesia. And she said, okay, Shell, here's the thing you need to do. First thing is you write down the date of your tick bite. Second thing you do is you keep a symptom tracker. Every day you write down your symptoms and how you're feeling. And so I started to do that. And then I was like, is this life disease or is it not? I thought, you know what? I'm really burnt out. I've, I've been to hell and back in the past, you know, 11 years or whatever at this point um, from life crises. I'm just really tired. You know, my immune system's run down. And then I ended up getting a cold. I kind of ignored it. And then I got a cold. 
And I was like, okay, well, clearly it's just my immune system's shot from stress run down. I get over the cold and then seasonal allergies hit. And I used to have seasonal allergies when I was a kid, but I'd never had anything this bad for like decades. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just being hammered by seasonal allergies. So I finally, you know, we, at this point, we're kind of at the beginning of, uh, or yeah, I guess kind of end of May. And, um, and, and I, and then I just got sick. I just literally, it was like, I was hit by a truck. So I got over the cold. I got over the, the allergies. Those symptoms went away. And then I woke up one morning and I couldn't get out of bed because every joint in my body was aching. I had a headache. I had nausea. I just felt horrible. I felt feverish. Um, I couldn't breathe. Like I felt like I just couldn't get my a full breath. And I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. Took the day off work. So I rested for the weekend. And then I, and then Monday came, I went back to work. I'm like, oh, okay. And then boom, Tuesday, it was even worse. I couldn't even get off the couch. And that's when I phoned my GP and booked an appointment and that was the start of a heck of a journey so amy's going to take you through the rest of your diagnostic journey but i do want to walk back to one more piece before amy uh, takes you through the rest of this part of your journey and that is um you had a tick on your back it was in an engorged tick and was on you for a while um and you know one of the things that we focus here on tick boot camp is learning the lessons in retrospect, that um, that that maybe folks wouldn't be aware of. If you had to do it again, uh, would you have waited to go to the doctor to get that tick off your back? Or would you have done anything you could, reach behind, run to your next door neighbor, whatever you had to do to grab that tick off you the minute you saw it, rather than waiting the extra time for that tick to be feeding on you and spitting all of those microbes into you? Yeah, well, so interestingly, uh, Rich, when I discovered the tick on me, I actually did go to the hospital right away. Like it was within a couple hours of, of you know, discovering it. It was wow. until later that I connected the dots and thought, ooh, I better go to my GP. Um, looking back, I mean, now that I, you know, I know about ticks and, you know, the fact that, that you know, there's so many out there. Like I've got a full length mirror in my bathroom. I, I'm always looking at all of me and, you know, pretty or not, I'm like, you know what, this is, this is about survival. This is about your health and your future. So you get that full length, you know, mirror if you live on your own or you get your spouse or partner or whoever, you know, to help you do full body tick check. Because especially, you know, it's things like behind the knees, on your back, you know, the places where maybe on your scalp where you can't see it or you're you're maybe just not looking. You need to do that full body uh, tick check. And so, yeah. So we need, so certainly tick checking is one of the important lessons. We should be checking yeah. multiple times a day. And we know that ticks are going to go into folds. They're going to look for folded yeah. areas, right? Yeah. Uh, but but my question is a little bit different, Dr. Ball. Um, okay. my, my question is, would you have not just waited till you get to the hospital, not just wait till you go through it, but you have to get the tick off immediately. And you don't right. have to have a perfect kind of tool. You, you, you've got to get the tick off you because the longer the tick is on you. Yeah the more likely it is that you're going to get sick. Exactly. So it, I think there's kind of two important points here. The challenge with this case was I couldn't even reach the tick on my back. It was just in such a location that I couldn't even get to it. And and I I think I did the right thing by going to the hospital. Like, I'm, you know, I, I think I arrived at the hospital. And it was probably about, it was, I would say, under two hours. You know, if I were bitten by a tick again and, and you know, said, hey, I can't reach it, I got to go to the hospital. 
you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that I'd be in the car five minutes, not two hours, going to the hospital to get that tick off or going to my next door neighbor or, you know. Yeah, that, that's my argument. It, it, it is. Get it off right away. Because one of the things that really um, bothers me is that when you look at what, you know, our, our medical system and our public health is telling us, you know, there's even posters still at my local hospital, you know, in, in 2023 that say, oh, if it's been on you for less than 24 hours, don't worry. Are you kidding me? Lyme can be transmitted in, in hours. And, and the other part, too, that, that really bothers me is that it's not just Lyme anymore. It's anaplasma, it's Babesia, it's Bartonella. And we know that anaplasma bacteria can be transmitted in, in minutes. So that tick needs to come off you right away. I think the challenge with me was because it was in a spot on my back that I couldn't even reach. Like maybe I could have used a back scratcher to yank it off. But then potentially you still have the head stuck in your skin. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of a double edged sword. I'd still say, you know, if I had to do it again, I'd probably scratcher, yank the thing off. Then I go to the hospital and say, get the head out right away. Right. Yeah. And, and, and let me challenge you on that, uh, Dr. Ball, because it, it really doesn't matter if you have the head stuck in you because that's not going to make you sick. Right. And in most cases, if, if you do get the, the tick off you and the mouthpiece is still in your back or in your in your skin, your your skin will eject it. And if not, you can go to a dermatologist and have it taken out. Right. So but the, the part the that still concerns me, though, is the bacteria that may be stuck in the salivary glands the tick because the the bacteria the Borrelia bacteria first start off in I think it's the hindgut of the tick but then when the tick starts biting they migrate to the salivary glands so right. the, I think that's why you really want to get that you know because some I've just had somebody recently contact me to say oh well we took the tick off but the head's still in there and I'm like ah yeah you still need to take this seriously because sure. there For could sure. still be some transmission right yeah right so so let, let's move back to where we were before we took the rich digression and you <laughs> you have your tick bite and your and your symptoms are developing and now Amy's going to start to ask you some questions sure. about how your health declined um after that um that that now flu like set of symptoms you were suffering mm -hmm. Amy Okay so like what you described I feel like is so many like Lyme warrior's life like you're okay well no I'm not okay but a few days later oh I think I'm fine now it was just like a cold oh no, I think I had the flu. Oh, no, I think I've been hit by a bus. Like, but I'm okay. Until just one day you're like, I'm actually not okay. And number one, it's so hard to get people to believe you, which drives me crazy. Because like, in all of that, you just look normal. Like you look like you've been hit by a bus, but you look just like you did six months ago. So like, it's really hard sometimes to get like the support of your friends or, and family because they're like, you don't look like you have the flu. Like when you have the flu or you have a stomach bug, you're pale, you're washed out, you look terrible. Like someone comes over and leaves soup at your door and they're like, oh my gosh, you look terrible, I'm leaving. But when it's something like this, like a tick-borne illness, you look totally fine. You don't look any different than you did last week. And so first, like when you were talking to friends or family about, you know, you think it might be a tick-borne illness, you're gonna go to the doctor. Were there any like comments kind of like, but you kind of look fine. Did you deal with the stigma of, but you look fine before you even had a diagnosis? Um, At that stage, not, not really. Cause I, you know, I wasn't sure what was going on and, you know, people are just like, oh, you're not feeling well. And, you know, we hadn't really sort of connected the dots. We weren't really thinking about it. Um, My GP kind of, did, you know, when I went in and said, 
you know, I'm, I'm sick. This isn't just the flu and it's not just that seasonal allergies or, or cold or whatever. Like I'm sick. And I think this is Lyme disease. And she's like, well, you look okay and of course then we do the you know the two-tier Lyme testing and she's like oh it's negative you're fine and 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 then we come back to oh it's just burnout because you've you know you've been through you know some really big you know life crises over the past several years and you're perimenopausal and you know you've just been through divorce and all this kind of stuff so everything kind of gets shunted towards other explanations it yeah. takes you away from that that diagnosis that you need to get quickly. And I mean, it's one of the things that I, I say to people, you know, and including information in the book, which is just that, you know, you need to act quickly, you know, get that off you right away. Because first of all, it's not just Lyme, it's anaplasma, it's Babesia, you know, other tick-borne illnesses um, that can be transmitted quickly. And you need to get on treatment right away. And and that is our biggest challenge, really, isn't it? Getting that diagnosis and getting treatment. Absolutely. So like when your doctor kind of like brushed off, oh, you've just been going through all of that. What was your response? And how did you were you like, oh, okay, you're right. I've been through a lot. But like, you had this feeling that it was Lyme or tick-borne illness or something like that. So how did you kind of like stand your ground and like go forward and getting that diagnosis? Yeah. So the first time I went in not feeling well, um, because at that point, I was kind of like, hmm is this line and uh and went into her office and and then you know she said oh I think it's just burnout and she did actually do draw some blood we did the um the tick testing through the public health two-tier tick testing which we know is is terrible um (laughs) and uh and again I I trusted her because I didn't know the science at that point and uh and then then I had gotten a little bit better but then it was probably about maybe 10 days later that I got really really sick Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, okay, I think this is Lyme disease. And I started to talk to people. So I started to reach out to people who I knew who either had Lyme disease or, um, you know, a friend of mine who's a scientist who actually works in the field of Lyme disease. And then I just started to read. And, you know, as a scientist, it's like, I want to connect the dots. I'm a knowledge sponge. I want to read everything. So I started to look at the symptoms and I went, oh my goodness, check, 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 check. And I was like, okay, that's it. I I need to get back in there. And then, you know, my friend said to me, she said, yeah, but show with your symptoms. She said, it sounds like you might also have Bartonella, but certainly Babesia, Babesiosis. Because at that point, I felt like an elephant sitting on my chest. I could not get air in. And I was starting to get this feeling of pressure in my head and various things. And so at that point, I kind of said to myself, okay, based on talking to people who have been through this, and all the reading of you know the science and everything, I think this is unfortunately the hat trick of Lyme disease, you know, yeah. Lyme Bartonella and Babesia. So I go into my my doctor's office and um, she's like, no, I think it's just burnout. And I'm like, I don't think so. So anyway, she said, well, let me test you because I, I had really really bad migratory joint pain. She said, well, let me test you for rheumatoid arthritis and a bunch of other things. And I said to her, I said, look, you can test me for anything that you want, but please give me some antibiotics. Yeah. And so I didn't get them right away. And I think it was on the, if I remember correctly, it was a third visit, not long after that I I went back. And I thought, because at that point, I I think I'd had two negative Lyme tests. And she said, see, you don't have Lyme disease. And of course, I, at that point, I'd start to read about how poor the two-tier testing was that we do here under public health in Canada. 
And also just the way that Lyme works and how it manipulates your immune system that you can have Lyme disease and, and absolutely have a negative Lyme test. And so I started to accumulate evidence. I walked into, I think it was a third appointment, walked into my doctor's office with about a, a 12 inch stack of printouts of scientific papers about Lyme disease and how it manipulates your immune system and about how poor the testing was. And so I walked into her office and I plopped it down on our desk and I said, let's talk about Lyme testing and a negative test and that you can still have Lyme. And so, and, and that I, I likely also have babesiosis. And she said, babesi what? <laughs> uh oh. So anyway, so I convinced her to give me three weeks of doxycycline. And, but I said, what about the babesiosis? And she said, well, I've just looked at your test results and you don't have um, uh, hemolytic anemia. So I think you're fine. So I don't feel fine. And yeah. anyways, I ended up going to a naturopath to deal with the babesiosis. And so I was on the three weeks of doxycycline at that point, but I knew that I needed to treatment for babesiosis, went to a local naturopath and was accounting my lifestyle and everything that had happened. And she said, do you realize that based on your symptoms and how quickly those symptoms hit, you probably are already in chronic Lyme and you have had Lyme disease since you were a kid, probably. And, and based on your symptoms, it sounds like you're also dealing with Bartonella and most certainly babesiosis. So then I got onto some, some herbs. And she said to me, because this is, you know, I think you're, you're already well down the chronic Lyme rabbit hole. You need more antibiotics. So I went back to my GP and asked for another three weeks. And she said, no. And so I kind of fought back and said in a polite way and just said, look, you know, here's why I probably have chronic Lyme and why I need those extra uh, three weeks. So we had some conversations about it. And in the end, she said, you know, I'm not super comfortable with this, but you know, she said, you actually know more about Lyme disease than I do. And, you know, she said, um, you know, I've, I've thought long and hard about this. Okay. I will give you the other three weeks. So I had another three weeks of doxycycline. I have to say by the end of that three weeks, whew, I was feeling so much better. Yeah. And then about a week and a half after the doxycycline was done, boom, I was so sick. I did not think I was going to be alive in six to eight months. So when you got to that point, like the ups and downs, number one, you're fighting your doctor, which I think is something so much, so many of us go through, which is so frustrating. Cause like, especially growing up for me, I was diagnosed in high school. Like your doctors know everything. Like you have a stuffy nose, you go to the doctor, your throat hurts, you go to the doctor. Oh, your, your arm hurts. You go to the doctor. Cause they just, they just know we like your your parents don't know a question the doctor does like you're gonna go because right. they know everything and then all yeah. of a sudden you go and they're like what what like what is that or you know like wait what's a co-infection wait ticks can mm. do that oh no we don't have that here so like all of a sudden this like pedestal that your doctor has been on for so long comes crashing down and then you question everything because you're like am I am I gonna have to be my own doctor now so what was that like for you like you're like, oh, I'm feeling better on the antibiotics. Oh, now I'm kind of worse. Wait, I might have chronic Lyme. What are you talking about? This isn't new, like coming from a naturopath. Like, what was that like for you emotionally for number one, for especially have you having a PhD and being involved in the science field? Like, mm -hmm. what was it like for you to realize that someone that you thought knew everything doesn't know anything at all about how to help you and almost doesn't believe you at this point? Yeah, that's a... That's a really, really tough kind of phase of this, this journey that far too many of us are, are on. And, and 
you go through this entire range of emotions because I think early, early on, there's kind of that self-doubt. Oh, no, 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 it's not Lyme, it's whatever, right? And and it's really unfortunate, but you kind of put Lyme at the back of the list or the bottom of the list of, oh, here's what it is. Like you kind of knock other things off first. And and our GPs do that. And And I think, I mean, I had a really, really wonderful GP and she's a wonderful human being. She's just trained by a system. Yeah. It doesn't, not that it doesn't know about Lyme disease. There's a, a, a massive body of peer-reviewed science literature out there now on, on Lyme and tick-borne diseases. This is that our medical system refuses to acknowledge it. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is sad, and I don't say this in a mean way, but I have now realized that, at least in North America, our mainstream medical system are the equivalent of climate deniers when it comes to, to tick-borne diseases, because there's a huge body of science, but they refuse, refuse to look at it and acknowledge it. And, yeah. and so you go through this kind of emotional roller coaster of, you know, what is this? I, I think in some ways I had the advantage of a scientific background. And I think the confidence to read the science, talk to other people, you know, with Lyme, what their experience was, and then to really advocate for myself, because that's what I've learned is the most important kind of part of this process is your your self-advocacy, right, for your, your yeah. own treatment. Um, and, and it was hard because, you know, I really liked my GP and she was a wonderful person and I think, a you know, very good GP, but she was trained in a system that's not, you know, that's not built to, to deal with these diseases. And, and it's tough because then it kind of puts you in this adversarial position with your GP, which I didn't want to be in. And, yeah. and she truly wanted to help me. The one thing we never talked about the elephant in the room. And that's about the fact that the maximum number of weeks of doxycycline she could give me was six weeks. So had she, I asked for more than six weeks when I got really, really sick and she's like, nope, sorry, I can't do it. And I never, I never kind of directly asked her why, because at that point we had finally learned that any doctor who gives more than six weeks of doxycycline, in other words, is treating outside of kind of the IDSA guidelines, um, is likely to be um, investigated by the medical board, the licensing board. And, and so I think doctors are afraid, you know, I, I, and you know, the health clinic that she was at, I'm sure their lawyers said, don't you dare give her one more day of, of antibiotics because then it, it, you know, it creates a liability for them. Um, and, and so that's a really hard thing to wrestle with because there were times where I was kind of angry with her, not personally, but more with the system that she was forced to practice under. And so it really was very much an, an emotional roller coaster, but I think where I was lucky was because I had the science background and could understand this stuff and was able to advocate for myself. I, I pushed really hard. I do have to say that when I got so sick, like I was at the point where I could barely even walk into her office. And there was a, at one point where it got so bad. Um, she actually sent me to the local ER because mm. she said, I don't know how to help you anymore, but you are clearly very, very sick. Yeah. Um, went to the ER and they did nothing. Right. So I think her heart was in the right place, but she was practicing under a system that had handcuffed her to do anything. Yeah. It can be so frustrating. Like you said, like having a good doctor who wants to help you, but legally they can't because then you become a liability and you, you have to wonder like, what if they could give you three more weeks? What if they could give you this thing that they're not allowed to give you? Right. Um, so that wasn't working and you know, you couldn't, take any more antibiotics and you also go to this like naturopath like what was the culture shock like for you because I think that happens to all of us we start out like at our pediatrician or like our GP yeah. and all of this like you know just this western medicine 
And I feel like most of us end up at some kind of naturopath and there is culture shock. What was that like for you? Because I know for me, like I was sitting in the doc- like doctor's office with like my mom and grandma, this like hippie doctor. And we're like, what is this? I think that happens to everybody. What was that like for yeah. you? Yeah, it was talk about being split between two different worlds. I mean, I think as a scientist, I'm very kind of open minded. I think I just naturally as a human, I am anyways. But um, so I was very open to going to a naturopath, but I'd never been to one before. Yeah. Um, Or or actually, I shouldn't say that I had been to one before, but it was, I mean, it had nothing to do with like, it it was just for like general health. And it, it was kind of more general wellness. So I wasn't really exposed to very much of kind of like naturopathic medicine. And, and so, you know, here I'm getting this from my GP and then I'm sitting in this naturopath's office who says, wow, you don't just have Lyme disease, you've got Bartonella, you've got Babesia, you've got chronic Lyme, you need three more weeks of doxycycline and here's a pile of botanicals that will help you, right? And, and you're kind of, it's a lot to process because you're really, yeah. you're really straddling two different worlds. And, and it took me a little bit to get my brain around it. And I have to say, um, this feeling kind of came later in my journey when I when I found a functional medicine doctor and went on like full bone treatment, which kind of comes later in the story. But, you know, kind of 95 percent, 90 to 95 percent of my treatment at that point was botanical, you know, was herbal. And and I remember kind of thinking, like, is this OK? Mm-hmm. And and it was kind of almost like this cognitive dissonance, because I know as a scientist that most of our pharmaceuticals come from nature originally. Yeah, it's just a the compound gets synth- tweaked chemically and then synthesized, you know, um, yeah. synthetically, right? But that's the the active compounds are very often, you know, derived from nature. So I'm sitting here going, well, I know that this stuff comes from nature. And I know that traditional medicine is important and traditional knowledge. And, you know, we've got 2000 years of Chinese medicine, but but then you your, your other foot's rooted in a, a allopathic medical system that says, oh my gosh, this is uh, witchcraft. Yeah. And and yet this is the only thing that that is only door that's open for you right now, offering some some treatments and solutions. So it, yes. it's a really tough um, thing, I think, to deal with. It's very much an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you started at your GP, started antibiotics, and now you're at the naturopath and doing botanicals. What was like the success with that? I guess were you feeling any improvement with that route um like what specifically were you doing and like how were you feeling in that yeah so um so once the six weeks of of antibiotics finished as i say i just crashed i was so sick um and at that point i wasn't sure what to do so i had already been into the naturopath and she'd put me on botanicals um my babesia symptoms seemed to be alleviating a bit in that you know i wasn't having the same air hunger and the same head head pressure and that sort of thing. So I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe I'm feeling a little bit better. But then, you know, I, I was kind of stuck in limbo. And and I think I, at one point, I actually felt a little bit like a deer in the headlights, not sure what to do. Because I thought, do I go back to my GP? Do I go, because I didn't, at that point, I didn't have the experience or the understanding that her, my GP's, you know, hands were tied, that she couldn't do anything else for me. Do I go back to this naturopath? And, uh, Anyway, so I ended up being so sick at one point, I actually went back to my local ER because I could hardly stand up. I could hardly breathe. I was just, you know, like I was just getting sicker and sicker. And I I said to the, the ER doctor, um, I need help and explain the symptoms. But then I explained, of course, as soon as I mentioned Lyme disease, the whole conversation went down. 
yeah. down the tubes. And he got angry with me. And and I told him, I said, look, I felt so much better after these six weeks of antibiotics, but it's at this point, we're probably what, a month off of the antibiotics. I'm really, really sick. And I said, I need help. I need more antibiotics. And he looks at me and, and he says, uh, he says, well, what do you expect me to do about it? And he yelled this at me. And, and at that point, I just felt like death warmed over. And I said, look, I'm the one who's being denied access to healthcare by my medical system. What do you expect me to do about it? And I yelled it at him. And that got his attention. And I, I never in my life have I ever yelled at a, a doctor. And I don't, I don't advocate for that. Yeah. But I felt cornered. I, I felt like I had no, no choice. And I have to say, it got his attention. And I think basically what I was trying to communicate to him was treat me with respect, please. Yeah. I'm sick. I'm coming to you for help. So don't belittle me and don't berate me. Help me. And and so his heart kind of softened at that point. And he says, well, let's sit tight and we'll run a bunch of tests. And I said, look, I just had those tests done three weeks ago. I can tell you what the results are going to be. Everything's going to be normal. I have Lyme disease, Bartonella, and Babesia. Anyway, we do the tests and everything comes back normal. And he says to me, he says, well, he says, there's not a whole lot I can do for you. But he said, he said, would you like me to actually refer you to a, a local internist doctor? Maybe he can help you. And I said, sure, at this, like, I'll take anything, all right? I'm not going to turn it down any kind of medical help. And so I said, yes, please, I'd appreciate that. So it took about another three weeks before I heard from the internist office. And um, and so the receptionist from the internist office said, so so what's your appointment about? Why do you want to come here? And I said, Lyme disease. And she's like, um, no, click, hung up on me. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of uh, doctor's offices, like trying to find a new doctor when you're going through this season of diagnosis and trying to find treatment, you say Lyme disease and it's either um, absolutely not bye or that's not real. No. Or, oh, well, we'll send you to this different person because we don't really do that here. You're kind of just like nobody wants you or nobody believes you in that season. That's right. Like that it's already isolating enough. And then you can't even find like a doctor who likes you. It, it feels like in a movie like you're the lame kid who's eating lunch in the bathroom stall because no one wants to get near you like it's terrible like your whole everything you're going through is not bad enough already so they were like you just just hit on something I think that's really important and I think you know I have such empathy for you know fellow uh, Lyme and tick-borne disease sufferers because we're gaslighted by the medical system yeah no you're fine no it's not this no go see a psychiatrist right like my um so my GP actually just out of you know, she was at her wit's end and she said, well, if this is Lyme and babesiosis, she said, um, you know, uh, we need to get you in to see an infectious disease doctor. So she sent in a, a referral. I never heard from the infectious disease doctor. So I yeah. finally followed up with um, my GP's office and they said, well, um, yeah, this is weird. So anyway, so I phoned the infectious disease doctor's office and they're like, oh, we never got the rec- uh, the referral. I'm like, yes, you did. So I go back to my GP and they said, yeah, we sent it. They got it. We'll resend it. So they resend the referral to the infectious disease doctor. Nothing. So then, you know, another, say, three weeks goes by and I I phoned them and they said, um, oh, we'll see you when we see you. And I said, well, is that going to be next week, next month or next year? And they said, we can't tell you. And I thought and I said, look, I am really, really sick. And they're like, too bad. So I phoned my GP. She actually phoned the infectious disease doctor's office and they would not speak to her. Mm. 
So the infectious disease doctor that I was originally referred to refused to see me. I finally, after pushing and pushing and pushing, did get to see an infectious disease doctor. They booked the appointment, you know, at a, at a time and kind of place to um, deter me from showing up. But I, I said, I don't care. I'm showing up. Yeah. And they tried to convince me that I had HIV AIDS. Mm. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And, and anyway, so I said, look, if you want to test me for that, you go right ahead. But I'll tell you right now, it's negative. Yeah. And uh, I'm not in the risk group. And sure enough, it was negative, And that was that was it. Mm. So it at was- this point, you have just gone from doctor to doctor to doctor, as so many of us have. Yeah. What next? What did you do? How are you feeling? And what was your next step at this point? So I got to kind of around Labor Day, so early September of, of 2019. And I was so sick that I thought I'm not, my next step is I'm likely going to be in a wheelchair because the neurological symptoms had started to kick in. And I thought the next step is wheelchair. And I don't think I'm going to be around in six months to a year. I don't think I'm going to survive this. And it's really funny because I think I am generally a pretty resilient person. But I remember kind of very end of August, beginning September, sitting on my porch and I had such a feeling of pressure in my head that I thought my brains were going to ooze up through my ears. I was getting numbness and tingling in my arms. My, you know, my speech was affected. I couldn't read. I thought, am I about to have a stroke? Like I was really panicked. And I remember sitting out on my back porch, crying, sobbing, going, oh my God, I am really, really sick and nobody will help me. And so I just literally in a panic started to reach out to everybody I knew in our local community who had Lyme disease or even mentioned Lyme disease. And I have to say how phenomenally grateful I am to people, including strangers I had never met before, but was given their phone number through a friend of a friend of a friend because they knew that they had Lyme disease. And so they gave me some suggestions, go on this botanical, do this, you know, here's, here's ways to help yourself. Now you need to find a Lyme literate doctor. And so that's kind of where that journey began. And so I didn't know the Lyme literate doctor in, in Ontario or even in Canada. I was like, well, where do I start? So I started to look in upstate New York because a lot of Canadians were going to New York state for help. And I thought, how am I going to afford this and the exchange rate and getting across the border when I'm so sick and I'm on my own. And, and, but I started phoning, um, you know, well-known Lyme doctors in, in that state. And I couldn't even, they wouldn't even answer their phones. They were so oversubscribed. They had so many patients that all you could do was leave a, a voicemail. And three weeks later, you've heard nothing back. I yeah. got to the point where I was in a panic. And so somebody had said to me, well, there is this Lyme literate doctor in Ontario at a private functional medicine clinic. You have to pay out of pocket for it. But why don't you contact them? The other alternative was to fly out to British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. Because it, I don't know if it's still true now, but at one point it was the only place in the country where a naturopath could prescribe antibiotics. That's not true in any other province uh, or territory in the country. So I had to then decide, do I try to go to upstate New York? Do I fly out to DC? Or do I try to get in with this, this functional medicine doctor in Ontario? So I decided to go with the functional medicine doctor in Ontario. So I phoned them. They don't answer their phone. So I leave a voicemail. I send an email. I'm getting to the point where I'm so sick. I'm, I'm just thinking, I don't even know if I'm going to be around in two weeks. Yeah. And so I literally started leaving voicemails, sobbing, saying, I think I'm dying. Please, can I get in to see you? 
And it was one of those voicemails that led to a phone call. And they said, well, we have a three month waiting list. I said, I think I'm going to be dead in three months. Yeah. So they said, well, fill out the intake paperwork. We'll do what we can do. And then they, they actually saw me in about three weeks, which I am so grateful for. And then that was the start of the journey for treatment and healing. Yeah. Hearing that, like, I'm just tearing up because I know that so many of us have gone like through that and the point like I remember at the beginning of this year after I got really sick from like um like not being in remission anymore it was New Year's Day and I was in tears because I told my husband I said I don't think I'm gonna make it to the end of this year wow where to now I have walked seven miles this week and I'm doing okay but I didn't know that at the beginning of this year and that's so hard you didn't know what you were going to be like here in 2023 so going into that first appointment what what was that like? How did your first appointment go the, that three weeks later? How did that go? It, it was good. I mean, the folks were really, really kind. Um, I actually had to drive to Toronto, so about five hours away to do it. And a very, very kind friend of mine actually drove me and we booked a hotel and stayed overnight. And and um, yeah, they, they kind of put you through the whole gamut of things, you know, like vials and vials of blood. You meet with the naturopath, you meet with the MD, you meet with the nutritionist. So it really is a treatment plan. So you're, you're really assigned to a treatment team, right? Um, and, and it's interesting because that was my first introduction to uh, functional medicine. And I have to say, you know, five years down the road, I, I look at allopathic medicine. So our traditional North American Western medicine, and I think it's bonkers. Like, yeah. Functional medicine is about identifying the root cause and, and treating that. Whereas allopathic medicine is, what are your symptoms? Let's slap a pharmaceutical on your symptoms. Yeah. And, and so sadly, it's meant that my faith in non-acute medicine, Western medicine is gone. Yeah. You know, functional medicine is what we should all be practicing, right? Every doctor should be practicing. So it was an introduction to that kind of, of medicine, that approach to medicine. So it was new to me and I was kind of, I was kind of intrigued by it. The initial appointments were mostly, you know, uh, taking tests, getting blood drawn, that sort of thing. And then once we got some test results back, then it was we since then it's it's primarily been virtual appointments. And so it was a sign. OK, here's what your treatment protocol is going to be. And they walk you through it and they explain it and everything. And they were wonderful about it they basically said okay you've got mold infection we've got to treat the mold before we can even begin to treat the Lyme so you know I we actually didn't even start treating my Lyme disease until several months into the process the first part of it was about um getting rid of the mold yeah um, you know detoxing through binders um uh I was on anti-malaria medication for babesiosis because I had a really bad case of babesiosis um, I tested positive for Bartonella. So they said, you know, we do want to treat you for that, but we need to boost your immune system up before your body can even process any antibiotics for the Lyme and the Bartonella. And, um, and so we were really focused on killing the mold, detoxing, boosting my immune system and reducing some of that systemic inflammation that you get from these persistent infections. And, and then once we kind of got down the line a little bit, that's when you know, the antibiotics and the anti-malarias um, showed up. And, and I mean, at one point I have to say, I, it's a double-edged sword. I am so phenomenally grateful to that functional medicine clinic, which I still go to. Um, yeah. So phenomenally grateful to the people who helped me, but I can tell you swallowing about 80 pills a day is brutal. You it's do a it, lot. it. It's like a survival mode that you go into, isn't it? 
you know, it, I I couldn't even take baby aspirin when I was a kid. I, I yeah. couldn't swallow a pill. And here I am now having to swallow 80 footballs. Yep. Um, but you you throw it down your throat because you know you need to, because otherwise you may not make it, right? Yeah. It's one of those things you, like you said, like when I was younger, like my mom would have to like, you know, crush my pill, put it in applesauce so I could get it down. And then it's like a few years later, it's like 14 pills at once, like getting them all down. And it's just like one of those things you never think you'd have to do until you have to do it. Um, I like how you touched on with your form of treatment, how uh, an approach that I think seems to be very effective for anyone in Lyme, no matter what their treatment is, is peeling back the layers of the onion. You can't just attack Lyme right away. Like you have to get your body ready to fight. There's always other stuff. There's mold going on. There's Epstein bar. There's all these different things. And it's like peeling back the layers of the onion until you're ready. You can't just attack everything at once. So I love that you um, touched yeah. on it. That was an approach for them as well. That's so, a really important part of the story, I think, because I, I, I wouldn't say I was ready to have a fight with my, my Lyme doctor, my functional medicine doctor, but I was like, why can't I have antibiotics? I'm sick. Yeah. I need antibiotics. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, we can give you antibiotics, but your body is not in a condition to actually process those antibiotics and actually use them. So we can give you antibiotics, but maybe you're only, your body's only able to kind of use about 20% of it. That's not going to kill anything. Right. And, and so a lot of it was me being educated by my Lyme doctor, my Lyme literate doctor to understand this, this whole process and this whole onion and how you have to you know, peel back those layers, right? So, so you're really kind of learning on the fly. And and I think, you know, an interesting part of this too, is that, you know, I had just been denied treatment by, you know, our public healthcare system here in Canada. And yeah. so you develop a lack of trust, but here's this functional medicine doctor who really wants to help you and you're paying big dollars for the treatment. Yeah. And you know that they, they want to help you and you have to trust them, but yeah. you're like, I want those antibiotics. And he's like, not yet. Yeah. I think that's so hard going through Lyme as well. It seems like the only way to get better is to go against the norm. And like you said, the public healthcare system wasn't able to help you. But at that point, you're like, what's the point of all of this? Like, they're supposed to be there to help us. Now I'm having to spend money out of my own pocket money that I'm struggling to even make because I'm unable to work because I'm so sick. And it's like, you either pay bills or you go to treatment. Like, was that hard for you? I know that like our medical systems in America and Canada are similar, but different all at the same time. What was that like for you to kind of realize that the healthcare system was failing you in that instance? It was brutal. I mean, it on, on multiple levels. So emotionally it was horrible because I, I felt like I, um, I felt like I had been abandoned very much so. Um, so I, I kind of had a lot of, um, almost like sadness or grief over that. Really. It's, it's like grief and having to process it. Cause you're like, this is a system I grew up with that that's always been there for me. And now it's saying, sorry, we're not going to give you any treatment because of the, the nature of the disease that you supposedly have. Right. And, and you're thinking, are you kidding me? So you're, you know, you're dealing with that. Then there's the anger because you've just been gaslighted by the medical system that your tax dollars supports, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, hang on a second. I have right, a right to access our medical system. 
but yeah. they say no actually you can't because of the, the type of disease you supposedly have so you, you go through sort of all of these things and then again there's the lack of trust so you're trying to build up the trust with your new functional medicine doctor you know who's wonderful and is doing great things but it's it's very much a, a learning journey interestingly too i also tested positive for rocky mountain spotted fever Mm. And we have no idea where I contracted that. And of course, we don't know, was it two months ago at that point? Was it, you know, two years ago or 20 years yeah. ago? Um, it could have been down in Costa Rica. It could have been when I was doing my field work in Missouri. We don't know. The good yeah. thing is that, you know, it was an IgG antibody, which suggests past infection. But, you know, my point is, is that you're almost getting like a crash course in tick-borne diseases. Yeah. And while you're trying to learn all this, this like scientific and technical medical information, you're also processing all of these emotions and it's really hard because yeah. the other part of it too is it's chronic illness, right? And when you're first on treatment and you're first sick and, and you're so sick, um, and, and I don't mean to say this in a disrespectful way, but you tend to get a lot of empathy and support from people. Yeah. But with chronic illness, when you're a few years into chronic illness, people don't want to hear about it. They want you, when they ask you how you are, they want you to say fine. They don't want you to say Oh my God, I feel like dirt today. Yeah. I love that you touched on that because that's so true. Like from when you first get sick to whether it's two years or 20 years down the road, it's like, I don't know that it's necessarily that people don't care. I think it's just, old, it's old news to them and it's not something they can comprehend because it's not something they go through on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I said before, we look fine they see us out and about at the grocery store at church, whatever. So it's like, they say, Hey, how are you? They don't want us to be like, Oh, well, it kind of feels like my foot's on fire and I can't remember anything, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> they they just want to be like, want us to say, Oh, we're fine. Like, thank you so much. And another thing that you said, so true, like with the public healthcare system, like treating Lyme is like, Oh, we can't help you. I think it can be incredibly frustrating because it's not our fault. I think that's one of the most frustrating things I dealt with. I didn't do anything to get Lyme disease. There's nothing that I did. I was not being irresponsible. I wasn't taking care of my body. It's not like I was out here smoking 10 packs of cigarettes a day. Like I, there was nothing that I did to make myself sick, but then you're punished because you have Lyme and that's not something on their big menu of things that they treat but it's not your fault at the same time. So that's so frustrating. I love that you touched on that as well. So kind of just walk us through your treat, like you're at this point seeing the functional medicine doctor, like walk us through what that looked like kind of up until this point. Yeah. So as I say, you know, the first part was treating the mold. So I did actually have mold testing done and, you know, it's not cheap, but you know, it was, I think about six, $700 Canadian just to, to get the, the testing done in the U S but it was really important. I came back positive for four different molds and um, almost, I think uh, certainly um, uh, ochratoxin and um, black mold was, was in there. And all of my mold infections were in the 95th to 100th percentile. Mm. In other words, my body was just loaded with mold. Um, so that absolutely had to become the, the first step. And, and that was really hard because a lot of the, the treatment for mold, the prescription you know, the uh, antifungals that you take are, you know, really hard on your body and they, they can actually make you feel pretty crappy. And that's one of the hard things, I think, with treatment of tick-borne diseases is that sometimes the treatment is almost as bad as a disease, right? And, you know, whether you're herxing or, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've just 
been reinfected or dealing with a, you know, a reinfection or a reemergence of babesiosis. Um, Cause the babesia that's here is recalcitrant. It's very treatment resistant. And, you know, I was back on anti-malarias and I was like, I had to, to stop it because it was making me so sick. And, you know, I'm not trying to um, kind of be overly dramatic about it, but very often I liken tick-borne diseases to cancer mm-hmm. in that the treatment can make you kind of feel as sick as the disease that you're dealing with or the condition that you're dealing with. And then, you know, kind of our goal is remission, right? Our, our goal is to, to try to get ourselves as better as possible feeling as good as possible as functional as possible but we know that we're going to likely to have flare-ups and that you know you're i mean i you know i I joke with some of my lime friends but it's like playing whack-a-mole right it's like you finally you know your your lime you know infection flares up so you finally beat that one down and then your bartonella comes back up and after you beat that one down the babesiosis pops back up and you're just constantly playing this this whack-a-mole so um, so, so it's hard, but it, you're right. It's like an onion. You have to peel back the layers. So the first layers were those, those, uh, mold treatments. And then a lot of herbals to, uh, reduce inflammation and to boost my immune system. And as my, um, Lyme doctor explained, what we're trying to do is kickstart your own immune system so that it kicks in to start trying to suppress the infection so that we're not having to hundred percent antibiotics. We want your own internal body to start fighting this infection too. So that was a real learning process. And, and, you know, I, I got to the point where it's like, yeah, I really have to trust this doctor and, you know, and, and the whole medical team was fantastic. And I'm, you know, really grateful for their help. You know, once we got to the point where I was starting to get a little bit better, he's like, okay, now we're going to hammer it with the antibiotics. So we're going to go after the Bartonella. We're going to go after the Babesia with anti-malaria medication. We're going to go after the Lyme. And so then you're on like four different antibiotics plus anti-malaria and, Oh my God, you know, and, and then the herxing. I I was like, I would hear Lyme patients say this, herxing. What's herxing? Oh boy, do you ever get blasted? And you learn really quickly what a herxheimer reaction is, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So have you continued that same treatment from then up till now? Uh on and off. So um it it's really interesting, kind of the twists and turns that my personal journey have taken. So I was probably on, I would say, really aggressive treatment for um, probably about eight to 10 months. And then kind of started to to sort of wean down a little bit where we were more, we were more focused on reducing systemic inflammation, you know, bolstering my immune system, trying to get my own body to keep these infections at a low level. Because we know, you know, at least the current science says, you know, suggests that, um, you know, these infections, we've got them for life, right? Um, you know, whether or not that's true, and, and new treatments come up that, you know, that might actually be a cure. I think the big thing right now is just getting yourself to feeling better, being healthier, and being functional, and, mm-hmm. and being happy, right? Yeah, you know, having a happy life. Um, and so for me, it was very much a roller coaster, because I would deal with flare ups. And so we'd have to then address those. The other thing that was really awful was that, um, unfortunately, I was getting reinfected. So I now have three uh, husky mixed dogs, so big dogs, plus two cats. Cats are indoors, but of course, the huskies go outside. They're on tick preventatives. I do tick checks, you know, like I take all of the precautions. But because I spend so much of my days outside, um, I ended up getting bitten a couple of other times. One time was my own stupidity because you know, I always spray myself with a carrot and spray when I go outside. 
it was this one time where it was like, oh, I'm just going to go outside and pick up this flower pot and come in like 30 seconds. Yeah. That was enough for me to pick up a tick and get bitten. And so I have had some bites since then. So whether or not I've been reinfected or whether or not those bites have then just triggered like a resurgence of the existing infections, you know, you don't really know. But what it has meant is that over the past five years, I've had to go back on treatment again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because I would still say I'm very fortunate because um, I would say the maximum I ever really kind of, for the most part, got better was about 70, 80 percent. And then I would I would kind of cycle and get sick again. And I did have a couple of periods, um, including about a year and a half ago, where um, I I actually had felt better than I had in like 10 years. And I was like, oh my goodness, have I like crossed the line to, yeah. well, you know, I've made it past this. And then I got sick again. And I, I think that's unfortunately one of the challenges, which is dealing with either the reinfection or just the, the resurgence of your, your chronic infections, right? Um, but for the most part, I, you know, like at least I've been functional. I've been able to work um, I, I have to say, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the past five years where I felt really, really crappy, mm-hmm. but I think what I have learned is that you, you don't ignore it, but I think you just have to soldier on. You have to get on with your life. Um, it's very hard because Lyme and tick-borne diseases are very socially isolating. You know, we talked about chronic illness and, you know, I've got wonderful friends who care, but you, you know, as you said, it's kind of old news and people get to the point where they don't want to hear about it. I mean, I had people, you know, who said to me, who, you know, knew what I was battling and they're like, oh, but you look really good. And and sometimes it depended on the person, but sometimes I'd say, hey, I might look great, but I feel like death warmed over right now, but I'm smiling. Yeah. When I do it. That's really hard because you can really, when you really need people's care and, you know, I'm, I'm divorced now and so I'm, I'm on my own and, and uh, it's a really lonely journey. And, and I don't think it helps us when we feel that isolation. I, I, I don't think that's a healthy way for us to exist. And so I think we need to find ways to kind of deal with that and kind of fill that void and to, to get the support when we need it. And, and I think that's where off, often the Lyme community comes in, is getting a lot of empathy from people who are also suffering. The other part of it that we haven't really talked about is I'm over $60,000 in debt yeah. to get to stay alive and my retirement's gone it has turned my my future upside down yeah and um i'm still dealing with it and and you know with interest rates the way they are i'm i'm worried about losing my house in a couple of years once i have to remortgage right if interest rates stay high but you know what i i you can't i realize i can't worry about it i realize that i just have to say you know what it is what it is it's yeah. my reality and i'm just gonna have to cross that bridge if and when i come to it mm-hmm. but i'm gonna financial state as our many, many Lyme patients that we never chose. I mean, I have yeah. a colleague, a friend here in Ontario that I, I met recently and she spent over $250,000 on treatment. Yeah. It's awful. It's one of those things like we were talking before. It's like you have to pay an arm and a leg to stay alive. It's one of those things. It's not fair, but like at this point, there's really nothing to do about it besides just do it. Like you have to go into debt. You have to choose, oh, well, I'm not going to have this nice thing because I need to lay down five grand at the doctor this week or I'm not going to get my treatment. Like, it's just one of those things. Like, I I mean, maybe I should start playing the lottery. I don't know, because mm-hmm. like, it's so expensive and it just sucks that 
our public health care system can't take care of that. Exactly. So, well, you go ahead, you go ahead. I was going to say, you know, you just kind of, you know, tweaked a thought. And and I think this is kind of, should we say, like the next phase of the, of the journey, which is I got to the point where it's like, I can't afford to treat anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I got really busy um, reading more and more of the science. Mm-hmm. And so it'd be like, OK, well, what botanicals can I take that are antimicrobial? And, and um, you know, what can I what other things can I take that will help to um, you know, alleviate some of the inflammation. So then I, I started um, leaning heavily on uh, functional mushrooms. And, and so I've done a lot of learning myself and, and, you know, for better or for worse, I've basically become my own doctor because I couldn't, yeah. the $250 for an appointment, you know, I couldn't afford to, you know, to see my functional medicine doctor more than, you know, three or four times a year. And then yeah. even the supplements, I mean, the supplements and the treatment at one point were costing me about $1,700 a month. I didn't have the money for it. I had to go into debt for this. Um, you know, and, and so it's also kind of forced me to get creative and say, okay, well, what are the other treatment modalities that we might have? Because we know there's a whole slew of, of different things that we can do out there. One thing I want to mention, because it was actually you guys who put me onto this, and it has been a really important step in my recovery. I'm, you know, I'm going to qualify that by saying I'm only just coming off feeling like death warmed over from a resurgence of um, Babesia. So the the species of Babesia we have here in Eastern Ontario, Babesia otocoilii, is very treatment resistant. And it it is now as common as Lyme and anaplasma in our area. So it's all over the place. And um, uh, so I did have to go back on, on anti-malaria medication, which did not make me feel good, but I'm finally starting to get uh, back on my feet. Um, but yeah, so I, I've, you know, for the most part, I've kind of backed off of treatment and have become very selective of what, um, like what botanicals and what supplements that I actually do take, because I've got a very limited budget right now. Um, and I'll kind of cycle through certain things. So I'll often go to like Bill Rawls book to see, you know, what are some herbs that I can use? You know, I've gone to other other sources. Um, but it was really interesting because back in, um, when was it? I want to say it was back in maybe about February or something like that of this year. I was really, really sick. So I have chronic gut issues, which is pretty normal for most people with chronic tick-borne diseases, right? Because your your whole immune system is is messed up. And, you know, most of us have food sensitivities and leaky gut. And um, I was actually diagnosed with late onset Crohn's disease when I was in my early 40s. So that that was my third um, autoimmune disease. I, when I was doing my master's degree in the early 90s, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome before it was kind of a known entity um, and really, really sick uh, for a couple of years with that. Um, ever since I was diagnosed with late onset Crohn's, I've had these food sensitivities. Um, they were pretty low level. And because it was late onset Crohn's, the symptoms aren't as bad. And I was just managing through uh, diet, no, no medication. Anyways, the, you know, the whole food sensitivity thing and the gut issues got really bad during treatment, especially when you're on antibiotics and all this, this stuff. And um, anyway, so um, I had gotten my, my gut issues got really bad this past winter to the point where I thought, man, I'm going to end up in hospital. Like I got to the point where I couldn't, it wasn't just gluten and dairy. I couldn't eat a single food without reacting to it. And I thought I can't eat anymore. Like what's going on? Am I going to end up in the ER? Am I going to end up in the hospital and losing part of my bowel? Cause this whole disease has gone crazy because of my, you know, my um, immune issues. 
so I was lying in bed this one Friday because I was so sick I couldn't work. And I was listening to to you guys, and um, and you guys had um, Ben Aaron's on, and so you were talking about the neural retraining and kind of the the whole um, um, you know like a limbic system involvement in um, tick-borne illnesses, and it was really interesting because for some reason about two weeks before I listened to your podcast with, with Ben, I'd been reading actually about the whole kind of neurobiology and the, the neurological and the limbic system involvement um, in Lyme disease. But I had originally gotten into it because I had a couple of friends who had uh, long haul COVID. And as I started to read the science, I started to realize that chronic Lyme and long haul COVID are basically the same disease. They're post-infection inflammatory syndromes that affect to a very large degree, your nervous system, right? And so I started to read about how the infection causes systemic inflammation, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, it inflames your brain. When your brain is inflamed and you get stuck in sympathetic dominance or sympathetic overdrive, it creates more inflammation in your body and you get stuck in this positive feedback loop of inflammation, which explains the chronic gut issues. Like most of my symptoms from chronic Lyme now are cognitive and neurological. And, uh, you know, to the point where my, my short-term memory is shot and, you know, and, and I've got sort of like some pre-dementia symptoms, which are really frightening, you know, at the age of, of 58. And, um, so I, I listened to the podcast with Ben Aarons and I'm like, I've just been reading about this in the science. Oh my goodness. And so I got onto Ben's website and I started to read more and I really loved how Ben talked about the science behind it. It wasn't just hey, I, you know, tried this and tripped over whatever, but he, he got into the science. I watched his, his TED talk and I went, oh my goodness. So I got onto his website and I, I signed up for Reorigin and um, that's been a really, really important uh, step for me. And I, I have to say, it's one of the things that had I known about this aspect of, of chronic disease and especially chronic um, tick-borne illnesses, had I known then, early in my condition, what I know now, I probably would have migrated away from supplements and gone on to the neural retraining a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love that you shared that. And just kind of even sharing how helpful the Tick Boot Camp podcast has been to all of us. And sometimes you'll be listening and you'll hear a little thing. You're like, wait, that's a thing. Or, oh, I forgot about that. It's just kind of, I just love this community. Um, it's like a light bulb went off when I when I was listening to you know you guys at at Tick Boot Camp and you got you know Ben Aaron's on and I'm going, oh my goodness, it just resonated with me. And then yeah. of course the scientist in me is like gobbling up all the science I can, and you know and and now my whole understanding of chronic Lyme and chronic tick-borne diseases, <clears throat> to be honest, is very different than where I started. You know I've now realized that chronic tick-borne illness, illnesses are actually an auto, autoimmune disease of your brain. Mm-hmm. And that treating your brain is one of the most important things, your inflamed brain, treating that is actually one of the most important things that you can do. I'm not saying that there isn't a role for antibiotics or anti-malaria or anything else. But the other thing that I've learned too is, is you know, the fact that what 70 to 80% of our immune system sits in our gut. So yeah. if, we're taking, if we're constantly taking antibiotics for tick-borne infections, bacterial infections like Borrelia, what is that doing to our gut? And are we kind of shooting ourselves in the foot because exactly. we're harming our, our gut and our immune system by taking the antibiotics. We're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. 
Am I saying don't ever take antibiotics? Absolutely not. There's most definitely a time and a place for antibiotics. But I think, you know, my, my thinking now is don't rely on those so much when you're like far down chronic Lyme. I think early in Lyme may make a bigger difference. I think at this point, when you're in chronic Lyme, I think that's when you should be treating an inflamed brain. Yeah, I agree. So in all of this, all these years of your different treatments, how are you now? Like, how are you doing today? Um, I, it's interesting because up until this recent, um, resurgent of babesiosis, um, for the most part, I'd been doing pretty good. And, and I've, I've had times where I've been kind of 60 to 70% better than I was at my sickest. I've had times where I was 95% better. I've had times where I was 50% better. So it, it's very much, um, a little bit of a kind of two steps forward and one step back. And I, yeah. I think um, I, I'm much more of an optimist and a realist than a pessimist. But I've really learned that you kind of almost have to kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, it, the hardest thing I struggle with is that if I go through a period where I feel really good and you're like, yes, I'm finally on a track and I feel really good. You're still trying to eat well. You're still trying to take care of yourself and, you know, get enough sleep and do all these other things to support your immune system, your general health. But then, boom, it hits again. Something you either get reinfected or you get a resurgence of an existing infection and it hammers you down and and you get sick and you feel like crap. I think for me, the hardest part is psychologically going, I was doing so well. You know, and and but I think what's really important, mindset matters, right? And I think sometimes we don't give enough credit to kind of our, our kind of psychology and how we approach this. And so, you know, what I've really had to do is kind of like, you know, dig myself out of the hole and say, hang on a second, you know, it's temporary, you know, take your medication for a bit, make sure, you know, baby yourself a little bit, right. You know, take the supplements, you know, back off your schedule a bit. So you're not as busy, you know, like do all the things that you need to do for you to feel better but know that you will get better. Right. Absolutely. It's like one of those things, like it's very hard when you're, you've been doing so good. And then all of a sudden you're not to remind yourself you were doing good and you can get back to that. You just can't get in your head, but it's really hard and your brain's inflamed and you're trying not to get down on yourself and the whole cycle. But you know, the other part of that brain inflammation that we often, you know, I, I think it gets talked about in the Lyme community, but not outside the Lyme community are the impacts of that brain inflammation on, on your, on, on psychiatric aspects. Right. So I've never been like, I've always been super happy and cheerful and passionate about life. I got to the point where it's like, I don't care about anything. I'm depressed. Uh, I have bad anxiety. Um, I'll be honest, like a many, 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 and probably most Lyme patients, um, you know, I had thoughts of suicide at one point. And which is horrible. I've never been there before. And I still deal with, you know, bouts of kind of depression, anxiety. And and I think, I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily the cause of it, but I, I kind of call it my, um, my lack of, you know, my, my uh, desire for dopamine. It's like, I have, I've always been a super motivated person. And then I'd be like, don't care. You know, all the things that I was passionate about, I had zero interest in. And, and so in some ways, I would say the hardest parts for me um, getting through kind of 
chronic tick-borne illnesses have been the, the psychological parts of it, the coming to terms with the cognitive deficits, because I'm way too young to have that, but I, I have it and I have to deal with it. Um, and, and really, yeah, like you walk this fine line between acceptance and coming to peace with it, but at the same time, you're not gonna just kind of roll over and, and, and accept it. You're still always pushing, hey, what could I do in terms of treatment or, you know, what other things might be out there that could help me? You know, I'm, I'm always kind of looking forward. I, I refuse to um, park in a pity party, I guess. Like I, I definitely have days where I feel sorry for myself, absolutely. But my philosophy in life has been to say, give yourself a bit of time to feel bad, to kind of look your wounds, you know, to, to feel truly horrible and, and, you know, to feel sad, you know, cause you've, you, you're still kind of grieved cause you've lost your previous life. Right. And, and even, you know, for many of us dealing with tick-borne illnesses, your whole personality changes. Yeah. And so I often grieve for the old me that used to be really cheerful and happy. Cause now, you know, I sort of joke, I, I run a local Lyme support group and sometimes we, we joke and go, yeah, well, I'm just, makes you into this grumpy old person, you know, like, um, but it's also part of why humor and connecting with other Lyme patients is really important. Cause then we just try to laugh our way through it. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's hard because there, there is a certain level of, you know, sort of acceptance. The other thing that's really interesting too, and I, it, you know, it's funny how you, um, uh, how you look at sort of how, uh, medicine changes, but also like social acceptance. So, uh, I have a medical prescription for cannabis. And I primarily use CBD because I find it's a really good anti-inflammatory. It helps with the joint pain. The big thing is it helps me with sleep because especially with Babesia, it is horrible on, you know, causing um, insomnia. And so I found that CBD has been a game changer for me for sleep and for general inflammation. I only take a, I don't generally like the effects of THC. I don't like that high feeling. So I usually only take a little bit before bed, but I find it yeah. really helps. Um, so that's been great that now society and, you know, our governments have recognized, are recognizing that, you know, actually these are safe things. Yeah. The next thing that I want to see our governments come online with is psilocybin. I think there is so much potential in psilocybin as a treatment. You know, there's plenty of science that shows for PTSD, you know, for uh, treatment resistant depression, uh, what got me interested in looking at, at psilocybin is the fact that um, there's a scientific evidence that suggests that it can help with autoimmune diseases, which is basically what chronic tick-borne illnesses are, right? They're, they're, they're chronic autoimmune diseases. And so I would love to see our governments realize that these are not addictive substances, that they should not be Schedule One, and that they should do exactly what they've done with cannabis, which is, sure, regulate it but make it available in a medicinal way for people. Because I think there's at least the science that I'm reading suggests that there's a lot of benefits to be drawn from psilocybin and we just need for it to be become legalized now. I, I agree that psilocybin is something that is exciting and on the horizon in the Lyme community and, and to, to tie together uh, two of the loops that you and Amy were developing together is you know, uh, neurally training is a vital part of a healing journey. I'd argue to Matt on many occasions that it's actually 80% uh, neural or emotional re uh, retraining and only 20% um, physiological. And I agree. Uh, yeah. we've had that debate back and forth uh, on many occasions. 
But one of the challenges that we have with neural retraining is that when you when you begin that process too early, it feels overwhelming. I've had many, many folks tell me, I was so sick, there's no way I could have done something else, right? Great. So Great. Um, so I, I think what, what may sort of fill that gap sort of as an early treatment is psilocybin. And right. um, because I think if if we were using psilocybin and having that neural retraining occur as a result of using the psilocybin, along with some of the uh, the uh, treatment protocols that you're using to deal with the infection, you may yeah. have uh, the dual benefit. But of course, there's got to you know we're gonna have to do that research. And and that re the good news is that you know we've shared with our community on a number of occasions is there are many experts in the Lyme community that are that are looking at these psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, and major universities have been funded with studies, including Johns Hopkins and Harvard exactly. and, and Yale with um, here in the U.S. with uh, with research dollars for uh, the psychedelics. So it is something we should keep an eye on. It's something we should be prepared to use. And and, um, you know, we're going to advocate. Right. So, you sure. know, when if you have a voice, whether it's, you know, government or, you know, medical community or whatever. But if, if there's ways to, you know, to advocate for. Um, you know, for psilocybin to be accepted as a, as a medical treatment, you know, if those opportunities exist to advocate, go for it, you know, help to push, right? Yeah. And, and, and it is important to understand that, that uh, at least from the standpoint of what we've seen here at Tick Bootcamp is there really is a pattern to healing, at least people who are successfully healing, right? And there is this process of a prehabilitation uh, where you have to prepare yourself physically and emotionally for this healing journey. And perhaps that's a stage where we begin to uh, begin to deal with the neural retraining elements of that, of that healing journey that we, you know, we go through a, a process of aiding our body, um, aiding our immune system with killing the, um, with killing the bugs. And I think you did a beautiful job, the two of you with, uh, with describing the importance of of, of getting your immune system the aid it needs and not just killing everything because it really is the immune system that wins the day. We then have to go through a process of rehabilitation, right? And that rehabilitation process uh, is one where we can then maybe spend more time doing more hardcore neurally training so that we, we no longer have the brain that we needed to have in order to be able to get us through this battle of illness. And then, of course, we have to get to a stage where we're maintaining all the gains that we've made and we have in our toolbox the tools we need to prevent ourselves from having the relapses that are that are a part of the journey. And, and, and again, Dr. Ball, you've done a beautiful job of sharing with us how you've had to deal with this maintenance element of uh, of healing, right? So we actually call that our our parm or parmesan, uh, you know, um, framework where 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 we have these these traditional steps. And the two of you really did a beautiful job of of outlining that that part of the journey. So now let's go to the beautiful elements of Lyme because we we do have to uh, we do have to uh, connect with our folks and and acknowledge that. It sucks to go through a Lyme disease journey. It really does suck. And it's not something that anyone would want, would want to do. But then, of course, it's not something you would give up either because there are so many beautiful elements to this journey. And, and it is really powerful to strip away all of these all of these things that our culture and our educational system and our governance system put on us and become a pure version of ourselves. It's really mm -hmm. powerful to understand who we are and what our God-given gifts are and what our purpose is in life. And when you go through a Lyme disease journey, you you are you are put in a position where you learn all of that in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. 
So, Dr. Ball, you you have written a book, um, and uh, and and in this book, you are trying to um, give folks an outline of of many of the things that you've learned, so that they would not have to go on this journey. So, talk to us about how uh, talk to us about how this uh, journey has been transformational for you. How you've mm-hmm. learned more about who you are and what God given gifts you have, and how you're going how you who how you are now going to serve the world differently than you would have had you not gone on a Lyme disease journey. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting perspective, Rich. And I, I think you've nailed it because I think it is something that we all go through in the, this journey. Um, you know, to begin with, I would not want, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. It's been horrendous in so many ways. But I am very much the kind of person who says, okay, this is a crappy situation. You know, I think as Amy said, we didn't ask for this and we didn't do anything intentionally to get here. It's just, it happened to us and it, it is what it is, right? And so um, so then I think the challenge becomes, okay, well, what are you going to do with this? And so, you know, people say to me, well, how on earth did you write a book when you were so sick with Lyme? And I said, I think it's just a combination of pure determination. I'm stubborn as anything. Um, and I, I think a huge desire to take a really crappy situation and try to extract something good from it. And, and part of that for me was to say, you know, I, I was denied treatment by our, our, you know, public healthcare system. I had to go to the science and actually read the peer reviewed science to understand this, these diseases and how to treat them. I'm fortunate. I'm very privileged to have a science background. How can I use that science background, take that information and distill it into a way that I could share it with somebody else and it would help them. And so, you know, I I'd started to kind of think about this and I thought, geez, you know, it'd be really cool to write a book. And if I wrote a book, I'd write it in a way that my mother could have understood it. Right. And then hilariously, I just out of the blue here from, um, uh, from Firefly uh, Books, the publishing company. I'm like, how'd you write, like to write a book about Lyme disease? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, did somehow the universe kind of, uh, you know, answer sort of this this thought that I had? And so that's what we did. So I worked with a publisher on this. They were wonderful about it. And I really did write it from the perspective of wanting it to be like a primer of Lyme disease and tick-borne um, illnesses. So it, it lacks details that other books I think are better at in terms of like treatment. Like I don't go into a ton on treatment because I think Bill Rawls books and some of the others do a really great job and you can write an entire book about treatment. What I wanted to do was to kind of give people sort of a bit more to like the 30,000 foot altitude view of Lyme and tick-borne diseases. So what are they? You know, they're, you know, bacterial diseases and, and, you know, in the case of Babesia, it's not a bacterial disease. You can't treat it with antibiotics, right? So for people to understand, you know, what these things are that they're, they may be battling, um, you know, what are some of the, um, you know, how do you test for it? What do you do if you're bitten? How do we prevent a bite? Or how do we at least, you know, minimize the chance of a bite? Those were the sorts of things that I really wanted to focus on, which is to say, you know, how do we get outside, enjoy nature, enjoy the outdoors, that minimize our chance of a bite. Okay, so we've got a chapter on that. What do you do if you're bitten? And then, okay, here's my recommendations about what to do if you're bitten. You know, get the tick tested. You know, do your best to try to get antibiotics. And if you can't get antibiotics, at least get onto antimicrobial herbals with a a naturopath. Um, What about the testing? Is there any testing that's good? Well, 
we know that the testing, the two-tier testing, that at least that public health here in Canada uses, is horrendous. And if you actually have Lyme disease, the probability that those tests will pick it up is about 50%. It's coin toss. It's useless. It, it, you know, what I basically say to people is that a positive Lyme test tells you something, a negative test tells you nothing. A negative Lyme test says either you don't have Lyme or the test failed to detect it and you have no way of telling the difference between those two, right? So I kind of wanted to educate people about the, the testing because there's, I don't know about you guys, but in this country, there's way too much emphasis on the blood testing, the two-tier testing. And, and I have to throw this in here because this, this really kind of drives me bonkers. Health Canada, so our, our, our federal government here, in 2012 had actually published a bulletin in the, I think it's like the, I think it's called the Adverse Reactions Bulletin. It's a bulletin for medical doctors in Canada. Keep in mind, this is back in October of 2012. They actually published a section on Lyme disease and the two-tier testing in Canada. And that bulletin written by Health Canada to medical doctors in Canada says, rely on a clinical diagnosis. Do not use the two-tier blood test to make a diagnosis. Use it as a supportive test because it lacks sensitivity. But what's happened in this country? You go to a GP and the first thing that they do is a blood test. And if it's negative, they say, you don't have Lyme and I'm not giving you anti any antibiotics. And so I'm starting to actually print this thing out and hand it to people and say, take it to your GP. Show them that our own government has said, don't use the blood test for diagnosis. Because the other part that we have here, and I don't know if you guys have the same issue in the US, is like I spent two and a half thousand dollars to get my blood tested with Armin Labs in Germany. Um, you know, you can get blood tests at, at Igenix. They're both great labs, right? But the problem is, is that our, our medical professionals in this country have basically, I, I don't know if they've formally been told or not, but it's kind of like the six weeks of antibiotics they will not accept those tests. So if you test under, you know, the two-tier testing under public health, which is a, a test that's horrible, and you test negative, and yet you test it Igenix and it's positive, they'll ignore the test. They'll say, I can't even accept those test results. So Dr. Well, let's stay with your book a little bit more. Uh, and I, I don't know that we even, we even gave the community the title of the book. So it's Lyme Disease, Ticks, and You. So talk to us about what inspired you to name your book, Lyme Disease, Ticks, and You. Um, yeah, it's, um, so it is about Lyme disease, but it's also about other tick-borne um, illnesses. So that um, the title is kind of, the, the second part of the title is a guide to navigating tick bites, Lyme disease, and other tick-borne infections. And so it, 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 I wanted, as I say, I wanted this book to be kind of a primer of, of tick-borne diseases to help people. Um, at the same time, I wanted it, you know, we sort of wanted a title that was a little bit more um, something that would interest the general public, as opposed to something that sounded very like scientific and technical, because I've, I've done my best to write the book so that, you know, people with zero scientific background could understand it. As I say, I tried to write it so that my mother could have. And, and that's important, right? Because, because one of the things that we, we understand here, we've talked about a little bit earlier, and which is why I think you're, you were uniquely positioned to write this book, which is it's important that we have a relationship with nature. It's important that we get outside and it's important, certainly during the prehab phases of our healing journey, but I think during every phase of our feeling, healing journey to be outside and, and to connect with nature, right? Uh, 
And that was something that you did from the day that you were born, or certainly the day you were mobile when you turned two years yeah. old, right? You also had a passion for photography. You also have uh, advanced degrees in biology. Um, and you brought together all of your education, all of your experiences, and all of your various passions, and you brought it to a book that was written both for people who have Lyme disease and people who uh, will hopefully avoid Lyme disease, right? Yeah. And you are uniquely positioned to do that because of all of the experiences that you had uh, and all of the gifts that God had given you up until the time that you had gotten sick. So talk to us a little bit more about how um, you wrote this in a way that would encourage people to continue to um, have a healthy relationship with nature, but also to be safe in nature, something you are not, um, mm -hmm. without necessarily having to be a scientist, because I think what has a lot of people concerned about keeping themselves um, healthy is that they're not scientists and they don't have scientific aptitude, yet um, yet they really don't need that in order to protect themselves from being exposed to Lyme disease. And you've taught them how to do that in this book. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a really important uh, point, Rich, is that you don't have to be a scientist to you know, to prevent a tick bite or to, you know, to even sort of navigate, you know, Lyme disease and these tick-borne illnesses. It, it's really about um, identifying some key steps that we can take that can minimize our risk of a bite, um, you know, build some awareness. It's like even here in, in Eastern Ontario, um, you know, I treat my dogs 12 months of the year for, you know, with the tick preventative. Sure, it can go down to minus 30, 35 degrees Celsius here, but we can also go up to, say, plus 10 in, in February in, in the wintertime. So you can be walking in the forest on a, a day where temperatures are above freezing and you can still get a tick bite in, in the winter. Absolutely. So I want people to understand these things so that part of it, too, is it's filling a gap because and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but but the public generally looks to our medical system for guidance and information. But when it comes to tick-borne diseases, all the information that they're giving out is wrong. And well, people and because are you... getting harmed as a result. And so I wanted this book to kind of fill that gap to say, I want you to have some basic knowledge so you can go out in nature, have fun, do it safely. And if unfortunately you are bitten, here are the steps that you can take to hopefully avoid what I've had to deal with. And so one of the things I thought was beautiful about the interaction between you and Amy is that I guess the upside and the downside to um, to recognizing that doctors are not um, all knowing uh, is that it's sad, as you had pointed out, that uh, that this pedestal that we are all um, you know raised culturally to um, you know to uh, worship these people at it does crumble, mm -hmm. and it is painful when you when you lose faith in people that you thought had all the information, but at the same time, it emp it's empowering because it puts us in a position where we can respond with ability. We can learn what we need to learn to keep ourselves safe and keep our children safe and keep our community safe. And it's a book like Lyme Disease, Ticks, and You, which can put folks in a position where in a very short book, uh, without any scientific jargon, you can be in a position where you can keep yourself safe. You can learn from the real experts, the Amy's, and, and, and the doctor um, balls, who are the people who've been on the journey and who are the real experts, not the doctors right. um, in the medical community, but the real experts who are now putting out uh, materials, podcasts like this and books like yours that will allow people to be safe from Lyme disease. Exactly. And, and you know, the other part of it too, and I never kind of really anticipated this when I wrote the book, but I've also found that it's kind of um, brought me together with um, 
not just the Lyme community, but, you know, so people suffering from Lyme, but people who are affected by Lyme, even, you know, say a family member who's sick or something. I mean, the number of people in the past five years who have contacted me and said, oh my goodness, I have a tick bite, what do I do? Or I've got a bullseye, what do I do? Or I was bitten and now I'm sick. How do I deal with this? You know, and and I'm not a medical doctor. I don't give it medical advice, but I can say, here's what I have done. Here's what I've read. And that's kind of what, you know, the purpose of the book is. But the other kind of advantage, I guess, of writing this book that has connected me with the Lyme community is that I've also, I'm just in the process of starting up a Lyme advocacy uh, group. And we're just informal. But I think one of the things that has really, um, you know, really kind of been, I guess, kind of a burr under the saddle for me with this whole Lyme and tick-borne disease journey is the prevalence of double standards. So, you know, when we were talking about doxycycline and how we're pretty much limited to six weeks of doxycycline, that it, it's the elephant in the room. You know, no, I don't think any GP will tell you, oh, I'm not allowed to give you any more than six weeks. Otherwise, my medical license will be revoked or something like that. It is the elephant in the room. But here's what really bothers me, at least in this country, your GP can actually give out, I believe it's up to four or six months of doxycycline, months, not weeks, of doxycycline to treat severe acne in a teen. So, so to clear that teen's acne so that they can go to their graduation without you know, a terrible complexion, they're allowed to get four months of doxycycline, the same antibiotic that we use for treating Lyme disease, and yet we're cut off at six weeks of that same antibiotic, and yet it could cost us our life if we don't have access to it. And, and so it's the injustices. Um, there's so many double standards. And I think the other part that I have become more, uh, not just interested in, but um, I think more vocal about and something that I'm gonna be pursuing is if you really stop and think about it, the way that Lyme and tick-borne diseases are um, treated or actually not treated by our, our mainstream uh, medical system, uh, it's a human rights issue. This is about preventing access to medical care for people based on the disease that they have. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here, but where have we seen this before? HIV AIDS in the 1980s, where a group of, of citizens were cut off from medical treatment or denied even a diagnosis you know, based on kind of who they were. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to say that, you know, we're, we're kind of in the same space and the same severity necessarily as HIV AIDS patients were then, because it's, you know, I, I hate to say it, but sometimes I think Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses are kind of more like death by a thousand cuts because of the chronic nature of it. But it, it's still, it's a human rights issue. And I think that's an angle of this whole story that has not been talked about enough. And I think those of us who are advocates need to start getting busy to really start um, challenging the system from the human rights perspective. And I think a good place to start uh, will be with your book, right? To give folks the foundation yeah. that they need in a non-scientific fashion uh, where they can begin to advocate for themselves to Absolutely. demand they that they receive the, the basic human rights that every human being is entitled to and to come up with a treatment protocol uh, that will work for them, right? Because there, there are just so many diverse presentations of this disease with a, you know, we have 
a diverse set of people who are bio-individuals who are harboring a different set of microbes before they come in contact with um, you know, the microbes from a tick bite and then have a variety of different microbes spit into them, 19 of which have been identified, but up to 200 can be in each individual tick. Um, and it does create a very diverse set of presentations in each individual. And we have the right to receive the care we deserve so that we can come up with the individual treatment time, uh, treatment plan that will allow us to get better. Exactly. So I, think that's I think you just kind of really nailed it, uh, Rich, was, you know, it's sort of the, the purpose of the book was to help people advocate for themselves, because that's what we've got to do, right? That's kind of the bottom line. To avoid getting sick, uh, if they have the proper uh, tools to avoid coming in contact with ticks, to check themselves, to remove the tick properly, and then to get early intervention. And if that doesn't work, well, then there are other steps that, that you can take to deal with uh, your illness if it does pivot over from an acute phase to a chronic phase. So I think you've done it brilliantly, and I think the book is, is a must-read for folks in our community. So again, Lyme disease, ticks, and you by Dr. Shelley Ball. Can you talk to folks about where they can get this book if they're interested in following up and reading the book after listening to this podcast? Yeah, thanks, Rich. So uh, certainly it is available on, on Amazon. Um, people can order it online that way uh, here in Canada through Indigo Books as well. Um, yeah, and I think even just going to your local bookstore and just asking them to order it in is also another possibility. And uh, yeah, easily accessible. And I uh, really appreciate you, um, you know, having me on to talk about this. It's um, it's an important topic. And I, I think the bottom line is we just, um, those of us who have been through this want to help other people. So now we get to the point in the podcast where we ask the final question. <laughs> and my good friend, Amy... Uh, as my guest co-host gets to make the decision about what the final question will be. Okay, so I've thought long and hard about this over the past two hours, and it's not a typical question. I'm so sorry, Rich. I'm not going to ask the normal <laughs> question. Um, it's kind of a question for me that I want to know, and I also know to help a lot of other people. Um, I remember a few months ago, I was talking to my husband, and I was talking about how much easier it was to be sick when I was a teenager opposed to now because when I was in high school my only job was getting better but now as an adult I it's not my only job I have a regular job I have to take care of my family I take care of my daughter like getting better is not my only job so what encouragement would you give to other adults going through this when getting better is not their only job, but it's probably the most important one? What encouragement would you give to them when they're juggling these jobs? Yeah. Um, well, you sure have nailed it. Um, because we have to we have to live, we have to get on with our our lives, right? Um, I, I think something that's really important is to not to be kind to ourselves and not beat ourselves up. We're going to have days where we feel awful. Yeah. Um, and we have to acknowledge that. And I think we have to be empathetic to ourselves in a sense to, to acknowledge that we feel crappy and it's okay to feel crappy and it's okay to feel sorry for ourselves sometimes. And, you know, to be a little bit depressed, but that, you know, I think, as you said, you know, we've got so many responsibilities in, in life and that we've got to, you know, find that way to keep moving forward and to, you know, to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and, and, and to, to maintain optimism, to know that um, it, it's hard because treatment for tick-borne diseases is so individual, right? What works for me may not work for you. 
So just because you try something that doesn't work doesn't mean there aren't other tools for you to use. And to also realize, you know, we've got new research coming, you know, that's going to offer, you know, new uh, tools for treatment and that sort of thing as well. So I, I think it's just being kind to yourself, um, cutting yourself some slack when you need to, but at the same time, staying optimistic and and focusing on some positive things. I'm, I'm not big on like uh, toxic positivity, but yeah. at the same time, I think there's, there's absolutely a necessity for looking forward and looking forward to the future and building things into your life that you will look forward to and you know spending time with your family you know booking that that family trip don't ever think that those things aren't ever possible again you know say if you were a big traveler before and then you know you got sick and and you just feel like you can't do it you can you will get there and i think we just have to stay optimistic and be kind to ourselves too that that is a perfect way to end uh this podcast with a Perfect question, Amy. It was certainly much better than the question I would have asked. So thank you both for spending so much time with us here at Tick Boot Camp. And thank you for sharing uh, your journeys uh, with the folks who uh, are part of our community. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say how much I absolutely love what you guys do. And I'm so grateful for it.